Well, Eric is not a stranger to Claremont Emanuel. Uh, this is, uh, he's one of our favorite Summerfest speakers. Over the last 25 years, this is his third Summerfest to speak at. Um, Eric is a professor at Biola University and teaches evangelism and theology there. He also co-pastors a church uh, in that area as well. Uh, he's received the Biola University Award for, the fa for Faculty Excellence and Professor of the Year. Uh, Eric and his wife Donna have four children. Let's give him a warm Claremont Emanuel welcome as he comes. Thanks, Kenny. I love being here at Claremont. This is a wonderful church. I know speakers always say that, but I love, I, I'm, a, I'm just flowing with gratitude right now. I'm seeing familiar faces from 2009 is the first time I think I came to, to speak here. And I've just loved seeing what God's doing and seeing how he's at work in such powerful, obvious ways. Got to be with the men on Friday night and see beautiful, servant-hearted, earnest, devotion to helping God do what he's doing here. It's just beautiful and to be here this morning and worship with all of you. It's just a delight. I'm very grateful to be here. Well, what I want to think about this morning and tonight is how we grow. How do we grow? What does it mean to grow as Christians? Because growing as Christians is really growing as God intends for human beings to grow. There isn't sort of the Christian way of human meaning and fulfillment and the non-Christian way. When we understand the Christian view of things, what God makes us for is himself. And the only way to have a relationship with him is through Christ in the Christian view of things. I know that's not a popular way of thinking these days, but that's clearly what the Bible teaches, that a restored relationship with the creator only comes through Christ and a relationship with your creator is what you're created for more than anything else. It's at the center of everything. And so unless we get that right, we are not living as God intends for his creatures to live. And so we've got to understand what it means to grow, but we've got to understand what it means to grow in light of who we are, of who he's made us to be. So would you please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to look at a anchor passage that helps us understand what it means to be made in God's image for him as human beings. This is a great description of the human condition. And one of the reasons I love the Bible so much among the, the many, many reasons I love the Bible is because of how incredibly accurately it describes the human condition. When I look at the incredible goodness in human beings and the incredible evil in human beings, I think the Bible has the most incredible description and definition and understanding of human nature of anything I've ever read. And the Bible helps us understand who we are. And this is absolutely essential to grow. We're going to think about how we grow this week, but we've got to think about who we are before we do that. As we go to God's word in Ephesians 2, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We're grateful that the spirit who inspired it through these human authors, is here and present and active in each of our hearts. And Lord, I'm thankful that we don't only just get to hear from a frail, fallen preacher this morning, but from your word. And I pray that we, as we go to your word, would be transformed 
and encouraged and blessed and edified and convicted and built up. Help us, Lord, now to learn of you from your word as you enable, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2 has a vital, central definition of what it means to be human. This is who we are. This is written to Ephesian Christians in the church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, but couldn't be more relevant to our lives today. And you were dead. Uh-oh. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course, the pattern, the way of this world. Notice it says dead. Dead. Not needing better parents or the government to fix our problems or better education or needing more time. It doesn't say tied up, anesthetized, knocked out. It says dead. If I'm dead, there's nothing I can do about my sinful dead condition. I'm dead how? In law-breaking, trespasses, and sins, missing the mark of God's holiness. And so I am a lawbreaker, I'm a rebel, I'm disobedient, that's how we all boot up. We're dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. These Christians used to be walking in this way, but they are no longer, in other words. They're no longer following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were sons, children of disobedience, and now we are no longer. But that's who we were, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's as bad as it gets. I don't know if that's what you came here this morning to hear, that kind of description of yourself, but that's what the Bible says. One of the things I love, another thing I love about the Bible is there's no fine print. You ever watch those commercials where the guy at the end of the commercial has to legally give you all the side effects of the drug they're trying to get you to buy? And they find these people who talk so fast they're actually saying the words, but you can't understand what they are. You don't know that you're going to have a giant growth coming out of your head because of this drug, because he said it so fast. God doesn't play that way. He shoots straight. He tells you the truth. He's a good doctor, and good doctors diagnose our problems accurately. And if you don't diagnose the problem accurately, you won't diagnose the solution accurately. And we don't have either of those problems with God. He tells us what's wrong, and he tells us how to fix it. Love that. But this description is just incredibly dark, dead in our transgressions and sins, walking among the sons of disobedience in the human condition along with everybody else. You see, there, there's a difficult thing to swallow about ourselves here, but there's also something encouraging here. We're all in this together. Human beings are fallen collectively and equally in a fundamental way. And even if the ravages of sin haven't taken over in your life like they may have in someone else's life, it doesn't mean they're in some separate category of neediness before God for the saving work he does in our lives. And so we are all in this together, and it's as bad as it can be, and thank God for verse 4. But God... 
I have a friend who gave me a sweatshirt that just says, but God on it. I get quite an interesting array of comments when I wear that in Costco and people see it. Some people say, what's that all about? And other people say, amen. It's beautiful. They know where it's coming from. But God, God intervenes as we need him to, and only he is able to solve this problem. But God being rich in mercy. Now, as we describe God and what he's done for us, I want you to pay attention to all these adjectives, all these ways of describing who God is and what his work is like. He's rich in mercy. I want you to notice how extravagantly God is moving toward fallen people who've rebelled against him here. I want you to notice this because the first lie and a persistent lie we're told about God is that he's cheap, is that he's stingy, he's a withholding God, and nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's the first lie we're ever told, I'm convinced. That's what's behind the first lie Adam and Eve were told in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 when God says to Eve, so you can't eat all the trees in the garden, huh? She actually calls him on and she says, no, we can eat of all the trees in the garden, just not that one that gives us the ability to determine good and evil. The knowledge of the tree of good and evil, that's the one tree in this incredibly generous garden that we're not able to eat of. And Satan just stays at it. He says, "Mm mm-hmm, yep, that's the one you need most. That's the one you better go at. You better not trust this God who's given you this command. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's a stingy God. He's a cheap God. He's withholding what you really need most. So you better fend for yourself. You better get after it and manage and manipulate and control and seek your own welfare because God's not going to do it for you. And that disconnects us from the gospel of grace we've been singing about this morning. And we come to hear about every time we come to hear the gospel preached that God is a God who is rich in mercy. Listen to how extravagantly he loves in these verses. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, not after we demonstrated our worthiness before him. Even when we were still dead, he did not find us in this lovable, wonderful condition. He found us dead in our trespasses, in rebellion against him. Made us alive This is awesome. Together with Christ, Jesus is a risen Savior, and in his resurrection power, we now are partakers of that, and we have new life in him, with him. By grace, you've been saved. It's grace. It's God's kindness toward those who deserve only punishment. It's his mercy that he's rich in, which is his kindness toward us who who are in misery and distress in this fallen world. And he comes to us lavishly pouring this love and grace and mercy on us and raised us up with him and seated us with him, Jesus, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice how often this in Christ, with Christ, because of Christ, through Christ idea is woven throughout this whole passage. So that, for the purpose of, in the coming ages, he might show, here it is again, the immeasurable, you can't measure it, riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Oh, what a beautiful foundational description of what it means to be redeemed, forgiven, justified, adopted Christians. That's what it means. See, the Christian life is a life. It's not something we just do on Sunday morning. It's not just something we do once at camp or when a preacher invites us to trust Jesus or at the bedside with our mom on our knees trusting Jesus as a six-year-old. That can be an amazing beginning of the Christian life, but the Christian life is a journey. It's something we do throughout our lives as disciples of Jesus. I don't think this is true at all in this church, but I think in the church, at least in the United States, there is a tremendous lack of an understanding of what discipleship really means. You can't be a Christian if you're not converted, if you haven't been brought from darkness into light, from death into life. And that happens sometimes dramatically, sometimes it happens almost imperceptibly in a process in your life. But if you've never been made a new creature in Christ, you're not a Christian. But being made a new creature in Christ is not the end of the story, it's the beginning of it, and it begins a process of walking out the Christian life, of working out your salvation, of doing what Paul says to the Philippians, living up to what we've already attained. This morning and tonight, we're talking about how we grow, what we do, our role very practically most of the time, in growing. And it can be such a mystery to understand what growth is. What does it mean to grow? There's a mysterious aspect to this, like the timing of it and how God exactly does it, how he makes us more and more like Jesus, how he bears the fruit of the Spirit increasingly in our lives. How he grows us into hating sin and loving righteousness. There could be something very mysterious about how he's working in our lives and, and something that we feel is completely, ultimately not our doing. But what we do, our role in it, I don't think is mysterious at all. I don't think it's complicated at all. It's not easy. It's never been easy. But I don't think it's mysterious or complicated. I think there are certain things that are very clear in the Bible that we devote ourselves to and we'll grow as God works. And so even though there's something very difficult to understand, it's like in my life, the, mo the hardest thing to understand about my growth is why it has, has been so slow in my life. And why in spite of of being a Christian so long, in some ways I can still have such glaring sin in my life. And the slowness of it perplexes me at times. But what do I do then? I stay at the things God has told me I stay at to, to grow 
and trust him with the results. And so tonight we're going to bear down on the nine ways that, that I think we devote ourselves to grow as Christians. And that's the way God works. These means of grace, these habits of grace, as I'll call them. These things we practically devote ourselves to. There are nine of them. I'll show you at the end. And, and by the way, um, this handout, when I do an outline for a sermon, it, it's more likely suggestions for where I'm heading. But, but this is, I know that drives some of you crazy, but th- we'll, we'll get through this by the end of tonight. So we'll get through the first part today, and then we'll get through the rest. So bring this tonight when you come, and we'll talk about the practical, specific ways we actually grow. But what I want to make sure we do this morning is lay the foundation of what it means to be who God made us to be. Because if you don't know who you are, you don't know what you're intended to be, and you don't know how to get there. And so so we've got to start with a clear understanding of who we are. If, If you've never laid in bed at night and stared at the ceiling and wondered if your life matters, if your life has meaning, then you're not human. And what's more human than wondering and deeply wanting to know that our lives matter? We're significant. We're not just molecules and atoms banging together. We're not, we're not just stuff that lives 78 years and then becomes dirt. And I remember the first time I watched The Lion King with my, my kids. Some really cool stuff in that movie, but there's some goofy stuff in that movie too. Like the main song, the circle of life. You know the song I'm talking about? I'm listening to this song, and my kids are singing along like, what? The the circle of life is sort of the answer to the question, what happens when I die? And it's supposed to be this happy, encouraging song. And the circle of life means how cool, son, that when you die, you go into the ground and provide for the growth of what the other animal comes along and eats. And that animal lives because you provide, isn't that cool? No, it's not cool that I'm fertilizer when it's all over. No, that's a terrible, that's circle. No, stop the song, right? Is that all it is? Is I become fertilizer? For something that becomes fertilizer, is that what it's all about? I won't even describe that worldview the way I'm thinking of describing it right now. It's, it's a pretty bad worldview, right? And so, so I hope it's not some circle. Of, I hope my life has meaning, not even for, for 80 years in a pension. And people go to my service and say, oh, he'll live on in our memories. Yeah, maybe. Till the potato salad comes at the reception. And then, and then they'll be on with it. A friend of mine was sitting... Uh, at, at, we were having tacos one night, and somebody said, hey, you got a text. He said, hey, this, this guy died. Young, young guy. We were like, no. What in the world? And, and we sort of absorbed it for about 90 seconds and sat there. And then the waitress comes over, and she says, you guys want more chips? And we're like, oh, yeah, more chips. And my friend said, wait. Do you realize what just happened? This guy we know died. We gave him 90 seconds and then got on to more chips. That's kind of what life can be like, getting on to more chips. 
Because life just keeps rolling and we want to say, wait, does my life matter? Does it matter for anything? You will never even be able to answer that question if you don't know what you're, you're made for. If you don't know what you are. Imagine if I said to you, you know, I took my, my laptop out to the garage last night and I had to drive a nail into a board and I tried to do it with that laptop. And it was a complete failure. The nail kept bending and the laptop got all messed up. And that laptop is just a horrible laptop. It couldn't drive that nail for nothing. And then I took my hammer and I tried to type a paper on it. And I couldn't get one word of a paper written with my hammer. I threw the hammer out. It's obviously a no good, useless hammer. Now, if I said that to you, what would you say to me? Probably something like, you're an idiot. <laughs> Go pull the hammer out of the trash. If you threw it out because it couldn't write a paper, you don't have a clue what hammers are for or what laptops are for. But you know what? So many of us go through life completely clueless about what we're for and how we get there. And you'll never get there if you don't understand what God made you to be and God made you in his image, gloriously in his image, primarily to reflect who he is in this world in relationship with him. You can't reflect who he is in this world as he intends unless you realize you are his workmanship. That's what it says. We're created in Christ Jesus as his workmanship. He crafted you, knitted you together in your mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made, gloriously made to image God. You know, I was almost distracted, but I'm thankful God's enabled me to start to be distracted in the midst of worship and then channel that to worship of him. I was almost distracted by the beauty of this harp. I was sitting right there in the first and second service, and I just, did you, if you can't see this harp, but after the service, don't touch it, but, but just come up. I'm not giving you permission, it's not my harp, but there is beautiful, just the harp is beautiful. You know, let's not even start with the music it makes, but it's, it's carved wood here and etched wood and painted gold leaf, and this is just a beautiful crafted instrument, just the beauty of it. And then I was watching Leah play it, and the movements of a harpist to me have always seemed like a choreographed dance. It's almost like she's doing ballet with her arms. It's just beautiful. I don't know if you've noticed that. Leah said she had never thought of it that way, but I have. And, and so you play this, and we're not even to the music yet. And then the music, I mean, it's this. That sounded terrible. I'm obviously not a harpist. Um, but it, the instrument is beautiful. The, the movement required to make the music is beautiful. The music is beautiful. But I was thinking, as beautiful as these things all are, by far the most beautiful thing here is the woman sitting on the stool playing it. She's the only thing we're told is made in the image and likeness of God. And that's true of you, as beautiful as this harp and what it's able to do is. It's not even close to what you are made in God's image, capable of imaging almighty, holy, all good, all beautiful God himself. 
That's who we are, the pinnacle of his creation, made in God's image and likeness to reflect him in relationship with him. That's what you're made for. See, that's where the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we get to the end of chapter one, and what does it say? And he saw what he had made, and it was very good. There's this radical affirmation of his creation and what we are. So the conclusion here is the song from the Lego movie is actually true. Everything is awesome. It's really true. Everything is awesome, but everything is also terribly distorted because human beings, the pinnacle of his creation, rebelled against him. So really the question of life is, you're made in the image and likeness of God to glorify God and image him in your life in relationship with him. So how's that going? See, that, that's the only way to understand who we are and have the dignity humans deserve that's donated by the creator himself. It doesn't lead to pride. It doesn't lead to arrogance. It doesn't lead to walking around saying, I'm awesome. It leads, though, to saying, I'm awesome. How awesome is the God who made us, though? And so it gets redirected to the creator. And I understand why people worship the creation. I do. I mean, look. I mean, the harp is beautiful. So is this. I mean, I understand. It's a tragedy when people worship the creation rather than the creator. But I understand why there's a tendency to do that. And so we've got to understand we're made for God, but we've got a terrible sin problem, like Ephesians 2 says. So what do we do? We, we, we solve it by depending on God's solution in Jesus. He solves it for us by becoming one of us, entering the creation itself that he created and taking on a human nature and representing us in a perfect life of obedience and a perfect sacrificial death that pays for our sins and a resurrection that gives us abundant and eternal life. That's how he does it. And how do you access that? Through faith. Turning from your sin in yourself to saving faith in him. And that starts everything over again. You know, when I was a kid, we played in the streets a lot. I grew up in a pretty urban area. And so we played in the streets mostly. Man, we hit some cars with bodies and basketballs and footballs. And, and the, the Huffmans had this, this fence that if a ball went in their yard, it was a race to get to the ball before Mr. Huffman did. Because he kept them. He kept balls when they went in his yard. He wasn't happy about it. So we played in the streets. But my favorite rule as a kid when you played in the streets was the do-over rule. It's a great rule. It's like, oh, wait, wait, car's coming, do-over. I wasn't ready, do-over. It'd be great if, if you could just do that. We, my wife and I instituted the do-over rule in our marriage, and we've used it a lot. You say something terrible, and you say, do-over, taking that one back, right? Let's start over here. And, but God is the God of the do-over. He's the God who gives us a fresh start and a clean start and is lavishly, graciously, overflowingly give us, giving us mercy, not only in making us his children through Jesus, but in the process of becoming like Jesus, in the process of becoming who he created us to really live like, and we live up to what we already attain in Christ. And so that's what we do. That's what this is about. And we've got to get this right. 
And when we apply ourselves to this, we can't disconnect who we are from how we're living and what we're doing, or it will be tragic. And so we've got to realize that these things are worked out in the midst of everyday life. And I, I want to show you a photograph of some folks from my church. I want to start there because I, I just love this picture. This, this isn't everybody in my church. This is mostly our food bank workers. We have food bank. We, we feed about 250 families a week of groceries every Friday. And, and it's just a really cool ministry. And these folks show up and they spend their Friday afternoon and evening praying with people and giving them food. And it's just beautiful. And I love this photograph because these are the workers in our food bank ministry. And I know everyone in this photograph. And I love everyone in this photograph. But even, even as I look at it now, it's so clear to me some people in this photograph are way easier for me to love than others in this photograph. I'm not going to tell you who's who. But that's the beauty of the family of God. And so as, as you, as I, work this out, you know, I'm not just some speaker. I, I'm a member of Grace Evangelical Free Church, and this is the context that I'm growing. This is a context I'm working this out, where all the messiness and all the annoyance and all the frustration and the hurt and the disappointment that comes with being the people of God. It, it couldn't be more real being a Christian. It couldn't be more on the ground, in the street, sleeves rolled up, growing as the people of God. And so I, I just want you to know I come under the authority of this church family. These are the people who take care of my wife and kids if I die today. This is my church family, and, and I come here representing them. And, and I'm trying to grow and be a Christian in the context of that family and this one. My wife of 33 years, Donna, we met when we were 16 in high school when I was a complete idiot, and she still saw something in me when I made the move um, after she finally broke up with her boyfriend. <laughs> the first day of school, I transferred to her, into her school when we were 16, and her locker was right across from mine. And I said to a guy I'd gotten to know, who's that? And he told me, and I said, is she dating anybody? She said, yeah, she's actually going to be class sweethearts with John in the yearbook, official. I said, ah, I'm not going to give up hope, though. <laughs> Yearbooks don't have a commitment associated with them, right? So it took 18 months for finally break up with John. And I had become friends with John by then. So out of respect for him after they broke up, I waited. Two weeks. <laughs> then I moved in like El Nino and um, never looked back. And we've been married 33 years, dated for seven before that. Don is the most incredible daily source of God's grace. She's his conduit of his kindness and wisdom and gentleness and patience and beauty and and humor, and it's, she's just this incredible gift. I'm deeply thankful for my dear wife. And uh, we have four kids. Caroline, who I called the mayor when we adopted her. The first hour we walked around Taipei when she was eight years old, didn't know any English. She walked around Taipei like she owned the place. And so I nicknamed her the mayor, and she, that's how she was. She's a natural-born leader. And then Paige over there on your left is... 
My 19-year-old daughter who is working in healthcare and is amazingly good in those kinds of situations. She, she's a dear young lady. And then Sam over on the right is uh, my son. He's also from Taiwan, as the first three were. Uh, and then Isaac is the only one from China. Isaac, uh, Sam has a really tender heart. Isaac is the life of the party. He's never met a stranger. We, so first three are from Taiwan. Isaac's from China. So right in our family, we have some significant geopolitical conflict going on between the Taiwan-China thing. Like I just read this morning that it looks like <clears throat> on uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Asia, she might, after all, skip Taiwan because China doesn't want that. The kids will be talking about that and get talking smack to each other based on it. It's just amazing how, like, <laughs> you, as you can imagine, the Taiwanese are like, Isaac, you gave us coronavirus. And he says, well, we gave you a paper, too, so what are you going to do with that? It's just, it's just amazing the interactions they have going on in the family. Uh, most of it's just a lot of bluster. But, uh, but I show you this because I want you to know that as I think, yes, as a theologian and a theology professor and a pastor, and when I think about this, I don't think about those places first. I think about here first. What does it mean for me to be a disciple of Jesus who's growing as a husband, as a father, desperate for wisdom every day of my life to do those things faithfully. It couldn't be more real. See, growth as a Christian is not some mountaintop experience. It's not attaining nirvana or enlightenment by visiting a holy man on a mountain or a pilgrimage to Mecca or, or, or something that you accomplish and then you say, wow, I'm there. No, it's something that couldn't be more, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, daily. He says the hardest thing about the Christian life is it's so daily. And we've got to embrace the dailiness, the normalcy of this Christian life but we've got to connect it to what it means to be made in God's image, redeemed and restored by him. And so we do it by practicing habits of grace. Habits of grace, then, are spiritual disciplines practiced with our bodies, mostly in normal life, and rooted in the local church. These are definitions that, that I came up with to describe what I like to call habits of grace, which is a title of a book by David Mathis that I actually haven't read yet. I really need to read that book if I'm going to steal his title. But uh, I'm sure it's a fine book based on the title. But I love the description of what we do to grow. They're habits. I want to restore something incredibly good about a word like habit. Most of us think about habits as bad things, you know, like chewing your fingernails or smoking, right? But I want to restore a really positive view of words like habits or customs or religion, religious practice, devotion, piety, or these words that tend to be used entirely negatively. But the Christian life is a life of discipline, same root word in the word disciple. And so we want to restore something incredibly positive about, about things we do regularly. I was just talking to Coach Westfall. And doing things as an athlete, as a matter of habit. I mean, what's, what's more important to become better as an athlete? 
than getting after the things you want to get better at with practices, with, ha with, with habits. Wow. Is that my pacemaker? What, what? Maybe you do have a pacemaker. I don't mean that to be funny. I was just... Sometimes, do you ever have things like that where you wonder, am I the only one hearing this right now? I, I do. I have those moments like, am I at a point in my life where these things are happening and no one else is experiencing? Uh, but so habits are things that can be ritualistic and religiosity and empty, and we don't want that. But we certainly want lives of disciplined practice. Things we just do. It's how we roll, right? Uh, and so, so we get after these things. So they become more intuitive and more regular in our lives. And so they're habits and they're spiritual disciplines. They're things we do to grow spiritually. But I want to quickly add, we do them with our bodies. There's a beautiful body, spirit, creation that a human being is that work beautifully together we, we tend to to separate those things but God created us in this beautifully integrated way and although our bodies seem to at times be at war with our souls or vice versa we nevertheless nevertheless recognize that these things are embodied experiences we want to appreciate the body and what it means to grow spiritually and it's mostly a normal life. I'll talk about that more tonight. But again, understanding the normalcy of most of the Christian life that doesn't feel dramatic. It doesn't feel this cataclysmic experience with God, but God's working in the mundane. And it's rooted in the local church. That's why I wanted to start by showing you that photograph of folks from my local church to remind us all that this is worked out in the dailiness of local church family existence. And they're habits, but habits of grace. These are things that enable us to grow in godliness. We actually become more like the God in whose image we're created when we practice these things. We become more and more like God. You know, we don't... Uh, when our kids come home enamored with either a young man or a young lady in their life... We, we don't allow terms like, she's hot. We, we say, what do you admire about her, Sam? That's what we say. We want to shift the focus from superficiality to character issues. And so often, even then, though, the character issues aren't the most important things. What I want to hear is, I admire her and I'm attracted to her because she's so godly. There's a godliness to her. She, she actually shows me what God is like. That's what it means to grow. It almost sounds blasphemous that that's possible, but that's what it means. We become more like the God in whose image we're made when we grow attending to habits of grace. Growth in godliness, which is a gift from God. And we've got to get good at receiving the gift from God that growth is. We don't, we don't do gifts well. There's something in me, I realize, that hates grace, that hates pure gift. And we even say silly things when someone gives us a gift, like, oh, you didn't have to do that. To which the person should say, I know. That's why we call it a gift and not a wage, right? It's a gift. A gift is not something you had to do. 
were compelled to do and didn't want to do. No, a gift is given to us. And so we need to be really good at receiving. Do you know my dad? My dad is a, is a strong man and in some good ways a proud man. But in some ways, my dad taught me that he, he didn't think it was good to ever show weakness or neediness. What's up? My dad was cutting wood in the forest with a chainsaw, and the chainsaw bucked and went and hit his leg, running full speed, and he tore that leg up. So of course, he wrapped it in duct tape and kept cutting in the woods until he got woozy and had to crawl back to the truck and drive himself to the hospital. You should see this scar I made. So that's kind of dad. My my dad would. But when my dad would occasionally borrow a tool, he didn't like it from a neighbor borrowing a tool. But I would sometimes go back and returning the tool with him, and my dad would always say the same thing. You know what he would say? He'd give the shovel back or whatever it was, and he'd say, I owe you one. See what that's doing? That's saying, I'm not going to receive anything from you. You can count on getting sufficient recompense back. That's not a good way to think. I owe you one is not how we ever come to God. It's all gift. It's all grace. And so we've got to see the habits of grace as habits of grace. That's what they are for us in our lives. And so we we recognize habits of grace are good for our souls, but only if we connect it to the vital concept of grace. So I, I want you to make sure, I want to make sure you understand the, the um, purpose of these habits of grace. They're not just primarily, ultimately character growth or even effectiveness in ministry, although they include that, but those are byproducts of seeking the goal. The goal of our growth is not even our growth. Our growth enables the goal to happen. And the goal is not our growth. The goal is intimacy with and enjoyment of God. There's a radical God-centeredness to this. And again, there's a danger to focusing on what we do to grow and our growth because you can actually make the growth the ultimate goal rather than God the ultimate goal. We so easily get knocked off-center away from a God-centeredness and our understanding of even godliness and the pursuit of it. So we've got to realize that, that God himself is the goal of our growth. Growth is removing the obstacles to intimacy with God and enjoyment of him. And so there's got to be a pursuit of him above all else. You know, I remember I was reading my Bible on a plane one time, and this very drunk lady who was sitting next to me, she said, what are you reading? Going to Miami. She got on the plane saying, I'm going to Miami. This old Will Smith song. And she sat right next to me. And, and she said, what are you reading? And I said, I'm reading the Bible. And she said, oh, I like to read self-help books too. <laughs> and it started a great conversation. I can tell you about it sometime. It was an amazing conversation. And that idea of self-help often gets confused with what the Christian life is all about. It's not self-help. It's utter waving the white flag of my own self-sufficiency and ability to help myself in an utter dependence on God. And that's what habits of grace do. They move the things out of the way that keep us from God's help in our own growth. 
And so we're seeking to work out our salvation, but never work for it. And the byproduct of this intimacy with God and enjoyment of him is fruit of the spirit, effectiveness in life and ministry, growing relationships and living on a horizontal level when we're getting the vertical in the right place. And that's the working out of the good news of Jesus in our place. First Peter puts it beautifully. Christ also suffered once for sins. See, there's the finished part of it. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We're alive in the spirit. Jesus does it once for all. And he does it, why? To bring us to God. Not just to get your life in order, get your life together. You don't come to Jesus primarily and ultimately to get your life together. You get your life together because to do that means you have a relationship with God. That's meaningful. That's what it's intended to be. That's what he does for us. And so Christ suffers for us in this way. Now Romans 6, 4 puts it beautifully. We were buried with him by baptism, so we die with him into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I love this because it talks about, as Paul says, that, that I no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me. This life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's died with Christ. And he's been raised with Christ. His life is found in him now. And now he is able to walk in newness of life. When we baptize people in our church, this is what we quote. We say, have you trusted Jesus for forgiveness of sins and Jesus alone? And they say, yes. And we say, well, then based on your profession of faith in Jesus, then I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. And then everybody was crazy. It's awesome. And, and we celebrate the newness of life they walk in now. And that's what it means to grow, to walk in newness of life. That's what we're called to, a life of newness, of walking that out on a daily basis. I want to show you Muhammad Ali's tombstone, and I just, I'm wondering what impact it's going to have on you. I don't know how that strikes you. But when I, when I read Muhammad Ali's tombstone, I, I really feel like somebody just punched me in the stomach. Most people read that tombstone and say, oh, that's really good. That'll lead to a servant-hearted, self-sacrificial, virtuous life. That's great. That's good motivation. If you understand the gospel of grace, that couldn't be further from what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. How much rent do I have to pay? How, how am I doing right now? What kind of place am I going to live in based on the amount of rent I've paid right now? And do you, let me tell you what his wife said at his funeral. And this was supposed to motivate people. This was what Muhammad Ali's wife said at his funeral. Muhammad worried about his salvation every day. He would wake up every day thinking about his own salvation and would wake up every day and say, I just want to get to heaven and I have a lot of good deeds still to do before I get there. That's every other religion in the world, but the Christian faith is radically different than that. It's getting the end of yourself and saying, no, not I, but Christ. He's done it for me. You start the Christian life, not with the burden of paying rent in heaven, but of the freedom 
of Jesus in your place. And then we get on with walking in newness of life. You know, I told about my daughter Caroline, who was eight when we adopted her, and, and she walked around Taipei like she owned the place. I could tell you all kinds of stories, but, but I will never forget, we were home about a week, not even, and we were, we were going to, to church, and I, we said to Caroline, we're going to church, we're, we're going for two hours, we'll be home in two hours, we'll have lunch, and, and we, we communicated that, and she understood it. And then we didn't understand why it was taking her so long to, to get in the car, and we're waiting for her, and she finally came out of the front door to go to church, and she had her arms filled with everything she could carry that was important to her. And, and we walked out, and she had stuffed animals. She had a change of clothes. She had food and her, some games. And we said, honey, we're coming back in two hours. You don't need any of that. And I will never forget the look she gave us. She looked at us. She understood even with so, so little English. She understood what we were saying, but she gave us a look that said, I know you told me that, but I'm not taking any chances. Do you know it took about four months before she started coming out the door to go to church without her arms full of all her stuff? Now, she had, still had pockets filled. But I think of that image of Caroline and that look she gave me so often because we can go through life laden with all these things we think we need to control and manage and, and manipulate and fend for ourselves, carrying everything we can. But you need to know the Christian life, the habits of grace we attend to, growth starts with dropping it all, free of anything to prove, anything to earn anything to demonstrate, and then we get on with the newness of life we walk in, in freedom and in joy and in disciplined devotion to growing intimacy with God where we experience that freedom more and more every step of the way. I don't know what you carry around, your reputation, your accomplishments, maybe some horrible failure you experience in your life, some sin from high school you still can't get out of your head. I don't know what it is you carry around with you. But in Jesus, you can let it all go and trust his life and death and resurrection for the newness of life you, done, you then walk out. You know, I don't want to leave you without any sense of what these nine things are, but Here's what we're going to devote ourselves to. We'll walk through every one of these tonight. We'll make some qualifications, some clarifications on them, and then we'll just walk through all nine of these things we devote ourselves to. But if we disconnect these things from the freedom we have in Jesus, we're going to miss the whole point. Let me pray. Lord, help us to not miss the whole point. Help us to know you're with us, you're for us, that Jesus has done everything we need him to do to walk in newness of life and forgiveness and righteousness and adoption. Lord, help us to know who you are and who we are and what a meaningful life looks like. And Lord, then help us to eagerly, with great freedom, get after the life of disciples, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.